This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen to the show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern or listen at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. You can also access the chat room during the show and follow Know It All for regular updates. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown, president of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we create education equity plans and promote equity in education in compliance with federal civil rights law. Our website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. There you can read our blog and subscribe to the ABC Know-It-All newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. Today we are talking about school turnaround. Schools and educators today have to contend with a lot. The U.S. is losing its foothold in global education standing. We have a widening wealth gap and the tremendous impact of that wealth gap on schools. We've seen growing racial segregation and racial and socioeconomic isolation. With all of this, schools still must perform according to a complicated set of accountability measures put in place by the federal government and by state and local governing bodies or risk closure or takeover, a delicate position. My guest today is Dr. Pamela Cantor, the founder, president, and CEO of Turnaround for Children, a nonprofit organization that works with schools to address the obstacles to teaching and learning that stem from the stress of poverty. Dr. Cantor is a child psychiatrist who has worked for years with children exposed to trauma. Welcome to Know It All, Dr. Cantor. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me, Allison. So I wonder if you would talk about your work with high-poverty schools and, and first talk about some of the regular challenges that, that high-poverty schools face. So, you know, one of the things that has been um, sun- kind of stunning to me and to us at Turnaround in now having been in over 80 schools, you know, each school will tell you the story as if they're the only school that is undergoing this kind of stress and challenge. But I can tell you that in over 80 of them, uh, the pattern is really the same. What's described are a set of readiness challenges in the kids, kids just coming to school not ready to be learners. Then there is a two to four year at least skills gap for the kids that had that probably began very, very early but got wider every year. There's a negative culture that has tremendous amounts of disruption, sometimes even violence. And there's a sense in the adult staff that nothing in the training that they've had prepared them for the challenges that they're looking at, either at the classroom level or the culture level. So, so this picture of readiness challenges, a skills gap, and a preparedness challenge in the adults, it's a pattern in every school, uh, every high-poverty school that we've ever been in. So when you look at that pattern of challenges and you factor in the background that I've had 
um, as a doctor, as somebody who has looked at kids who have experienced trauma, when I first saw schools like this, what was striking to me was it really looked like schools that were filled with kids that had many of the same kinds of issues that I saw when I was working with kids in my office, meaning problems with attention, concentration, impulsivity. But when you look at this in the aggregate, the macro picture of this, it looks like this pattern of challenges that I was just describing. Mm-hmm. So why poverty? You are tackling poverty head on and directly addressing the impacts of poverty for children and, and their families and educators and with the readiness challenge together with the preparedness challenge. It seems like a lot. Um, why? why is it that poverty is your focus? Well, you know, it's interesting. You use the word poverty, and then you use the words impact of poverty. And these two (laughs) things, I think, have gotten tremendously conflated in the education reform dialogue. When I was working in practice, I never fixed anything that had happened to a child. If something bad had happened, it happened. And my job wasn't to fix it. My job with that child was to understand the impact of what had happened on that child and to fix that. And by fix, I mean help children develop resilience, surmount those challenges. But what you were addressing was the impact of, of what had happened, not the thing itself. So this notion of fixed poverty or fixed schools, to me, has always been a false debate. It's been a false choice. Because although I I would have no problem with fixing poverty because of what it is as an injustice, the thing that I think we as an organization are contributing is, is an understanding that poverty affects children's development in very specific ways. And by understanding it, you can actually apply a solution to it. So we look at poverty as a set of predictable challenges, unreadiness for school in very specific kinds of ways, that skills gap that I was talking about, and those things point the way to a different question, which is if you are a high poverty school and you are an adult in that school, what what is the toolkit that would make you ready for that set of challenges if you were the teacher or you were the leader? When I was in my office, I was never in over my head. I had been trained for the kids and for the challenges I was working with. The teachers and leaders I know and we know, they don't feel that way. So I I think there is a kind of field, like like as if it were a medical subspecialty, that should be called, what does it take to work with the challenges of high poverty schools? And we should be rigorous about that, about what the skills are that working in those schools require, and then train for it and and build an army of people with those skills in the building because I promise you, for this set of challenges, it's all hands on deck. And right now the notion that a few great teachers and and a social worker are going to be enough to get underneath this is really foolish. 
So what does what does the turnaround method and school turnaround look like? Is it professional development? Is it training for parents and students? What exactly is involved in your method? Sure. Well, you know, I, I think from the picture that I've already given you, our schools are in a pretty stressed state at the beginning. And often their biggest point of pain is starts out as a, a relatively small percentage of kids, but can be as much as 15%, with very, very intense needs. These kids are often the leaders of the building. The teachers can identify who they are in two seconds. And they have intense needs. And they're also not easy to reach. And their families are not easy to reach. So by using a targeted and very effective student support system that is built into the school. It involves a social worker, a team that is focused on assessing uh, kids, and a very, very strong uh, partnership with providers in the community, mental health, but also social service providers. So high capacity, culturally competent student support is, is literally the first thing that our team does when we start to work with a school. And there's a relief in that, that everybody feels that the kids that are, that are often tearing up the school are kids that ultimately get help, they calm down, and the whole environment calms down with them. The second thing we, we do is training. And, and for that, we've done a tremendous amount of research and development work on what is that toolkit for every teacher? What does every teacher need to know how to do? Not talking here about the common core or content. We're talking about what does it take to create lively, engaged, and focused classrooms? And for that, we, we identified the two biggest challenges of a high-poverty classroom. One was disruption, and the other was engaging students. So we picked four practices knowing that teachers don't have a lot of time. They don't have um, time built into the schedule often in district schools. So we wanted to make it the tightest group of skills and then create a learning community in the school using small group instruction to teach these skills over the course of the year. And we have a remarkable amount of interest in these practices, um, high percentages of teacher attendance, by which I mean over 90, and a lot of easy uptake with these practices, with teachers saying that anything that takes my four biggest problems away is pretty easy to learn, and I'm willing to do it. And then the third piece of student support teacher practice, and the third piece is working very closely with leaders to put a focus on the environment first. Many, many leaders, as you said in your opening remarks, are forced to go toward the things that they're being measured on. And they're being measured on performance. So they're not thinking that the thing I have to do first to get there is establish what we call a fortified teaching and learning environment, fortified to combat stress, fortified to produce high levels of readiness, and fortify to, to prepare teachers and leaders to know what to do in their classrooms and to form strong connections to kids. 
So a lot of our partnership with leaders is to help them know how to prioritize environment and get that done as the first thing that they, they establish as a foundation. So with your whole school approach, you involve all of the staff. Does that include lunch staff and cleaning staff? And then what about external service providers who come into the school to provide services? So security officers, occupational therapists, and the like. So when we partner with a principal, one of the things that we ask of our principals is to and I'm putting it a little bit softly, frankly, there is an official um, and very clear MOU with our school partners um, that involves having a social worker or hiring a social worker that we work to supervise and support. It's training of everyone in the school. So you're right to point out um, the different kinds of adults that are in the building because you can just imagine that if you try to establish a new culture in a building, but you've got two or three or four adults that aren't buying in, the kids sense that. And the consistency across every adult and providing training to every adult is absolutely critical. And the work with the leader is actually for the leader to establish the vision for what is okay in terms of the way adults interact with kids and what is absolutely not okay. So establishing that vision for a supportive and a caring culture throughout the building in every adult, and that includes the, the police and you know everybody, um, is actually a linchpin of this working. In terms of outside organizations, one of the things that we do with our leader partners is establish a team for school improvement, which is the school's leadership team. It's called many different things. But all partners working with kids um, and our, who are partners of the school are either on that leadership team with the principal or they're on the student support team that I was talking about earlier that looks at the needs of individual kids uh, that are struggling. But, but having a common framework that all partners are using that is tied to the vision of the leader and the expectations around culture is, is part of what that, that particular um, collaboration is with the leader of the school. So it's consistent across outside partners as well as the staff on the inside. So can you talk a little bit about how school turnaround originated and how it is different from school takeover? Sure. You know, we had the name Turnaround for Children actually even before the current administration, and then the word turnaround began to be used in a, in a different context. So maybe I need to make clear that Turnaround for Children was formed just as the word would suggest, that we, we are about changing children's lives, but changing children's lives by building or helping leaders to build and have a very different kind of school. So our work is always in partnership with, co-created and co-designed and co-executed with uh, schools. 
So it really is quite distinct from turnaround in the sense of, of the administration's use of the word turnaround, which has a lot to do with you know, coming in and managing a school, um, having a great deal of control over hiring and firing, none of which is, is our model. So, so I just want to be sure that even though the word turnaround is in our, our organization name, that isn't, that isn't what it means. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our work is very much a partnership model that involves skills and competencies and supports. Um, it is school-wide, but we don't have the ability to, um, to legislate that this has to happen. We have to build a culture of the willing and have schools as willing partners with us in bringing this about. I'm not sure I answered your question. I hope I did. Yes, yes, you did. And, you know, I think that distinction is very important, you know, that, that – uh, School turnaround has come to mean takeover, essentially, and um, that turnaround for children is not that, that it is very much a partnership and uh, very much involves all of the people who are already in the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you would talk about that a little bit. As, as you, you, know, you mentioned training and that there are certain skills required and, and that you work backward from that set of skills that is required to work in a high-poverty environment, yes. can anyone be trained? How do you think that there are, um, as long you mentioned 90% investment from the teachers, as long as there is investment and a desire, can anyone be trained to appropriately address, to address uh, the, the impact of poverty? We, we absolutely believe that <laughs> that they can. Um, why don't I tell you specifically what the four practices are, and, mm-hmm. and maybe that specificity will will make uh, make it visible why this is quite learnable. Um, the first is a practice called classroom organization and management, which is how do how do you set up the learning environment of the classroom? Um, the words are kind of jargony, and they um, they're all out there, and they mean different things depending on the curriculum you use. We picked classroom organization and management from Vanderbilt University, and it's a 12-module training, of which we probably use four of the modules. But the ones we care about is how a classroom feels to a child. Is it a fair and consistent environment? And what what are the rules and expectations of the kids for being part of that classroom community, and what can the kids expect from the way that adults interact with them? What kinds of things are going to be consequences of, of behavior that, isn't, um, that, that it doesn't meet expectations? And when kids learn about voices that are kind, um, teachers that are going to help direct them toward better choices in their behavior, um, those kinds of things begin to be skills that are taught uh, for kids to become part of um, a very, very different kind of environment than many of them have been exposed to. So classroom organization and management has a lot to do with the teacher-student connection and also the environment of the classroom itself. The second is 
Diffusing Disruptive Behavior, which is based on the work of Jeff Colvin, who is, you know, just deeply involved in teacher practice around how can teachers manage disruption and not lose their focus, not lose their teaching time and their lesson time, and how can that be done in a way that is pro-social, that is actually teaching kids what's expected of them, not just disciplining them. So Jeff Colvin's work we adapted for, uh, for our uh, professional development curriculum, and teachers find it extremely easy to learn and, frankly, very stress-reducing for them because they have a tool. It's very stressful for teachers to be trying to get their lesson plans out and to have a student or two that are making it impossible and to have no tool for how to quiet a student and calm a classroom and at the same time keep their lesson going. So those two tools, um, classroom organization and management diffusing disruptive behavior, are just seen as tremendously valuable against real pain points that teachers have literally every day. And then on the instructional side, we were really interested in catching kids up. So we wanted to look for practices that were developmental and cooperative learning, Spencer Kagan's work um, from his uh, Neurodevelopment Institute in California was the practice that we chose because kids sit in groups, they work in teams, there's constant talking and problem solving and debating and it's a very, very engaged kind of classroom structure and Structures are what are taught to the teachers, and they really make learning fun. Often they feel like games, and teachers just love learning them. And then the fourth is based on the work of Rick Stiggins from the Assessment Institute called um, Student-Involved Assessment, and this is where learning goals are owned by the student, and the environment becomes more I can instead of you will, and kids we align this, of course, to the common core, so the, the learning goals that kids have every day are very, very understandable to them, but they're also mapped to the, thing, to the kinds of progress that kids are expected to make based on the standards. So if you look at that toolkit and you say, what does this give a teacher? What is, what is a teacher able to do because they can do these things? You know, what we've done is, is kind of broken down what what are the components of highly effective teaching, but respectful and sensitive to the challenging conditions that you often find in these classrooms. And when teachers put these four practices together and they're learned over the course of a year, what they see is they've really got a very powerful toolkit for the challenges of, of these kinds of schools. That, that is... Um Amazing, and you know it, it sounds new, but there are pieces of it that sound very familiar. So yep. um, it, it seems as though you're not starting over wholesale with teacher education, uh, right. but that you are putting together elements that teachers and educators likely have seen before. So you know, looking at classroom organization and management. Um, and, and diffusing disruptive behavior, it sounds very much like some of the work that's been happening around the student discipline reform effort 
to incorporate alternatives to exclusionary practices, so social-emotional learning, positive behavior support, uh, restorative justice, and, and things like that. And similar with the instructional pieces, catching kids up and student-involved assessment. Is that true, that there is some newness to what you are, you, your method is and to these four practices, but that there are things here that are very familiar to teachers? Um, you're, you're picking up on something, you know, that's I think at the core of um, of what our thinking has been, and that is, it, it's a bit driven by the fact that that my professional life started as a physician, and here's what I mean by that. I, you know, we we have always understood the challenges of these schools as a as a as I said before, almost as a subspecialty of teaching and learning. And what we've asked ourselves is not what is the one thing you have to do because we think the challenges are just too great for that. We've asked the question a different way. Is there a small number of things that if everybody did them and if everybody did them to, prof to proficiency, that the challenges of these kinds of schools, we could reach the tipping point and establish this kind of foundational environment. Well, to answer that question, we did go looking for what's the best that's out there. But we didn't say to ourselves, okay, well, you just have to do classroom organization and management, or you just have to diffuse disruption. It's, it's what are the one, two, three, or four things you have to do to really reach a tipping point in having effective classrooms across a school and a vibrant culture across a school. Because the minute you say that, the minute you say it's across a school, then you're talking about the competencies of every adult and you're not just talking about one competency. You're talking about, it's like if you said, what does it take to create a great pediatrician? It's never gonna be just one thing. But it doesn't have to be everything either. And you know, as you um, as you recalibrated the the frame earlier, as you're focused on fixing the impact of poverty rather mm -hmm. than fixing poverty itself, which is a separate goal and and you know can be um, addressed through other means. But as you're in schools and addressing the impact of poverty, you mentioned that poverty affects children's development. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what that looks like. So for uh, a school and an, a school who has approached you or is working with you and is in the initial phases, what does that look like in that school? What does that school environment look like? Yeah. So we do regard poverty as a trauma and as a trauma, it creates stress in children, and stress of the kind that we're talking about um, causes actually a biologic effect in kids. It causes their HPA axis of their brains to release cortisol, and cortisol can create that feeling that we all know, that fight-or-flight feeling where we feel sometimes numb or we're not able to think or we feel very, very easily triggered because of how tense we are. And I think what turnaround is 
is ultimately trying to say to the world is that children who walk into school every day having experienced some extraordinary stresses can't just leave them outside the school door. They bring them into school. And they carry that stress with them. And stress does affect the parts of the brain that are distinctly necessary for kids to learn. So there are parts of the cortex, parts of kids' ability to remember, to think critically, all of these things, executive function, they can be affected by stress. So we, we believe that one of the primary things that a school has to do for children who have experienced that, and again, it's shades of gray, the degree to which they are experiencing it. For some kids, it's pretty extreme, and for other kids, it's less so. But we believe for all kids, the stress of poverty is very, very real. And it's actually biologic. It's not just something that, um, that is a word. It's a word with a distinct meaning. So everything about what we're advocating for is that environments are created that intentionally reduce stress and the practices and culture uh, that we've been talking about together are things that are meant to mediate and reduce stress in kids, to promote readiness for learning so that kids begin to develop the academic behaviors that they need for, for schooling. And the teachers feel prepared because they understand what they're looking at. So disciplining kids in harsh, exclusionary ways is 100% the wrong thing to do for kids that are, that are expressing stress in the way that stress gets expressed by human beings. So it's very wrong to approach it that way, and it only exacerbates things. So whether the argument is a biologic argument, a social justice argument, whichever way you come into this, you're really led to one place and that is that there are a set of practices that will make this better. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think it's been recognized as, as a distinct field, as a distinct set of activities and competencies that have to be, frankly, in every single school that serves high concentrations of kids growing up in poverty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you really have addressed this question in what you just said, and I wonder if you would just speak explicitly about the role of equity in school turnaround. And, you know, my, my focus as a civil rights attorney is on equity and compliance with the law, um, which doesn't unfortunately protect students living in poverty or children living in poverty. Uh, but but I think that there is a significant role for equity to play and, and certainly an equity mindset um, to, to play. So if you would just highlight how equity works in school turnaround. Sure. So if, if we're willing to say that, that poverty is a trauma and that stress is a phenomenon with, with biologic roots, that impacts children's developing brains. So, so if we just think about that, and if we say that these brains are going to develop based on the environments that we put children into, 
Our brains are experience and environment dependent structures. In fact, the cortex of our brain is, as human beings develops after we're born. Mm-hmm. So this means that if we put children in harsh environments, in environments that are not able to reduce stress and support them, okay, we are endangering them. We are endangering their development and we are endangering their future lives. So to me, the resource inequity in, pover- in high poverty schools is doing that. Okay, at, at, the, at the best end, it is not supporting kids enough. And at the worst end, it's fully capable of harming them. Mm. So, so to me, the equity argument is equity about this, this, the same kind of thing we would say if we were talking about a, a medical illness. We're talking about things that, that actually support the development of children or harm them. And, and so if we look at high-poverty schools as places that actually have the power to correct for the effects of poverty, think about the power in that to change the course of large numbers of children's lives. That's what environment is. It has the power to do terrible things, and it has the power to do great things. And to me, equity is about the power to do great things. And, and so it, if you need the medical argument, we've got it. If you need the brain argument, we've got it. And if you've got the fairness <laughs> ar- argument, we've got it. Yeah. It all points to the same thing. And, and how do you know that the method is working? How do you measure success? Well, we, we have a, an enormous commitment to measurement at turnaround um, and in, in two different ways. I mean, we have historically measured the impact of our student support systems We've, in terms of kids getting services that are high quality and highly effective within 30 days. So we have those kinds of benchmarks for every one of our practices with teacher training. We have teacher self-assessment. We have coaching of teachers, and we have observational rubrics for teachers mastering those practices. And then, of course, on a whole school level, we are looking at whole school metrics of culture like suspensions, referral to special ed, incidents, but also uh, uh, learning environment surveys and uh, surveys around teacher turnover, um, absenteeism, and the like to determine that, in fact, the culture is getting healthier. I say that, though, also to tell you that I don't think those metrics are adequate for the subjects that we're talking about now. And so a lot of new work going on at Turnaround is to to look more deeply at the subject of how do you reduce stress in adults, kids, and the school as a whole, and how do you measure that? Or how do you measure student readiness and teacher preparedness? And how do you measure that a whole school is moving out of what we call that red zone? We have a red, yellow, green paradigm for school improvement, and schools in the red zone are these 
very, very unready places, how do you measure that schools are moving out of red and toward yellow, which is ready, or green, which is thriving? So we believe that there is a reason to have metrics for this field of challenge. And, you know, we and many, many others across the country are starting to work on articulating what those metrics ought to be. But, but I think there is a real need to have them so that we can actually measure schools um, and, and their ability to tackle the deeper challenges that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that this is an ongoing process for schools, right, that the work of school turnaround doesn't ever really stop, that educators have to be always intentional about implementing the practices that you train them in. But under your MOU or Memorandum of Understanding, how long is a typical engagement with turnaround for children? Typically, it's between three and five years. I think that the hope that we have is to articulate stages between what what I was calling before red and yellow so that a leader would know how long it will take them to get out of the deep red zone, how long for them to have uh, a ready staff and ready uh, classrooms. But, But if we're just looking at all the schools that we've worked with, the average is in that three to five years. And if teachers or school leaders or district leaders are interested in working with you, how do they do they approach you? I know that your your website is at uh, is it turnaround.org. Uh, it's t- either turnaroundusa.org or tfcusa.org. Okay. Okay. And so if school leaders want to talk to you about coming into their schools and helping to work with their staff to support children and and support teaching and learning, how do they begin that process? Well, we are working right now in New York, Newark, and D.C., and we have also, this, this is the first year of beginning to work with districts because I think we all believe at Turnaround there are just too many schools that need this for this to be the work of one program or to be replicated only on a school-by-school basis. I think the practices that I've been talking about today actually could become the regular business of, you know, how districts uh, operate and Uh, meaning districts that place a primary focus on accelerating a teaching and learning environment, accelerating the creation of a teaching and learning environment that can reduce stress and increase readiness and promote academic recovery quickly. But turnaround works with clusters of schools. We can't just work with one school at a time because the economics don't work. But typically, we're working with clusters of four or eight schools. And very often, they're referred to us by the district and sometimes by word of mouth. So if it's 
if a school were to approach us after this show and they're in one of the cities that we work in, then we would we would just begin that conversation and see if the fit was right between us and them. If it's a new city, it's a much more complicated um, undertaking for us right now. But but there is a tremendous amount of growth uh, that that we're I think on the verge of. And so you know I would certainly encourage people to get in touch with us. We're also very open to sharing uh, the things that we know uh, with others. So um, I would just welcome uh, people getting in touch with us. And then how do you work with, with students and families in the turnaround process? How are they involved? With respect to students, it I think the two main pathways, one is through the, the work with teachers and what classrooms begin to feel like. I mean, the way that we reach kids across a school is via the classroom and the competencies in the adult staff that we work to build in partnership with schools. In terms of direct work with students, the student support part of our model is about individual services for kids. And those are delivered in two ways. They're delivered through the work of the on-site social worker, sometimes in combination with interns from social work schools. That's mostly true in New York um, in terms of the interns. And then for kids that may have more intense needs and may need a, a deeper evaluation, uh, the partnership with local mental health providers are uh, the ways in which kids receive those more comprehensive evaluations. So it's, it's a triaged system, and it happens through the student support team. But reaching that 15% of kids, and then often kids that are less intensely affected, happens through that student support structure I was describing. In terms of families, there are also sort of uh, two points of, of contact with families. One is through the student support work because families have to be engaged if kids are receiving services. Uh, first, one has to overcome stigma just for the kids to get services. And then once they are getting services, it's really important for the parents to be a part of that process. So parents will even sit in on a student support team meeting where their child is being discussed so that uh, they are part of the process of figuring out how to support them at home. The, the other thing we notice in our schools is that when schools become safe and welcoming places for parents, parents come to the school. Um, most parents in a first-year turnaround school that are staying away from the school are staying away because they know they're going to be blamed for something their child did or they're afraid of some kind of sanction that's going to be delivered to them from the school. So they're completely absent. But when the culture begins to change or when word gets around that a school is a place that is trying to help kids or when kids are getting services that are actually effective, um, parents begin to come to the school, and pretty much by second or third year, 
the parent community of a school is, is very, very active um, because the school culture has changed. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Dr. Pamela Cantor is the founder, president, and CEO of Turnaround for Children Incorporated. You can find more information about Turnaround for Children at turnaroundusa.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Cantor, for being a guest on Know It All. Thank you very much for having me, Allison. Thank you. Audience, you are now officially certified Know-It-Alls about school turnaround for children. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook. And read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.